0: Father, I thank you that you are here in this moment, meeting us wherever we are. And God, I I pray for every single person who's joining us in this moment, whether they're here in Los Angeles or across the nation or somewhere across the world. God, I pray that in these moments, you would just draw them close, open up their, their, their hearts. God, open up their minds. I pray, Father, that you would speak to the deepest part of who they are, that you'd bring light to the darkest places, the God that you would bring, that you bring hope in the middle of despair. The God you would bring encouragement to those who feel discouraged. That you would bring strength to those who are weak. The God that you would, in these moments, even through my words, speak words that have never come to my mind, give to each person the very words that they need to hear from you. We thank you, Father, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If I were to ask you, what are the top 10 things that bring you joy in life? I wonder what you'd write down. Maybe it would be uh, traveling, or visiting new places, or maybe it's having a great meal, or, or enjoying uh, an evening with your family. And even if I asked you to list the top 100 things that would bring you joy, you might add things like having um, a great pizza, or maybe um, enjoying a great cappuccino. and. You know, there's a guy on our our Venice team in um, Venice Beach named Matt Pagan, and he's a pro surfer. And I I think that one of the things that gives him joy is surfing. And and my son Aaron, he surfs with Matt. And I think one of the things that would give Aaron a high level of joy is surfing like Matt. And, And I think in life, there are always those moments of just joy that just erupt inside of us. Sometimes they come to us as a surprise. But what would God say? should bring us the greatest amount of joy. Well, what should be the experience that would unwrap in us so much joy, it would be overwhelming? Well, in, in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 8, James tells us this. He says, Consider pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, because the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work in you, that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without finding fault. But when he asks, he must not doubt, but believe, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not think they will receive anything from the Lord, because they are double-minded, unstable in everything they do. But that, that opening statement in verse 2, consider it all joy when you face trials of many kinds. You know, sometimes when you, when you read the scriptures, it violates everything you know from real experience to be true. How in the world are we supposed to consider trials the source of joy? And not just the source of joy. It says consider it all joy, pure joy, the consummate, ultimate experience of joy we're supposed to experience when we're going through trials. And here we are in this moment facing this COVID-19 virus. Our, our, our nation has been shut down the planet has been shut down. There are are people who are so concerned, afraid for their lives. Others are afraid of of infecting someone else. And and then there's so many people who who are not even in danger of, of having the virus have a negative effect on their lives who are terrified right now. And I've heard so many people asking questions about why would this happen and even why would God allow this to happen and what's our posture in this moment? Are we supposed to be the ones who are panicking and hoarding and having this overwhelming sense of desperation? And what if, well, what if it gets worse? Do we lose our joy? And yet, thousands of years before this moment, it's as if God already knew we would face times like this. He says, consider it all joy. That that description means the consummate source of joy. All joy, pure joy, when you face trials of many kinds. Now what's really beautiful is that, that, that word many or various is actually the word multicolored. The image that James uses is as many colors as there are on the spectrum, that's how many different kinds of trials you're going to have in your life. That Those are the kinds of, of, of challenges that all of us are going to face. And so sometimes the, 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 the trial can be mild, and other times that trial can be the most intense experience in our life. And he says, consider it all joy when you face trials of many kinds. Why? Well, he immediately just drills it right in. Why? Because the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Now, by the way, one of the curious things about, about this word trials is that it has the same etymology as the word for temptation. And so sometimes we ask, well, how do we know if it's a temptation and how do we know if it's a trial? Because one of the things in the scriptures is that it talks about how temptations come from the evil one and trials, well, they can come from God. But the odd thing is that it's the same word and it can only be translated by the context. And how you respond to that moment. And so in a strange way, it's a temptation when you surrender to it. It's a trial when you rise above it. And God wants us to step into these moments in life and not just survive them and not even just thrive in them, but to be able to find the greatest level of joy in the midst of the most difficult moments in our lives. He says, why? Because... When we go through trials, it says that perseverance must be developed in us that we may be mature and complete. See, what happens, it says that perseverance is doing a work inside of us. Now, there's a lot of attributes I wanted in my life, but perseverance wasn't really one of them. I, I never thought to myself, I really want to persevere. I think I want to be talented. I want to be intelligent i, I, I you know I, I want to have influence, I, 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 I want to be something else, but I don 't you to say I want to have perseverance because perseverance implies that you have to go through something hard, and yet it says that when we face trials and find joy in them, it says there 's something that 's working inside of us. I think all of us who understand who God is, we all want God to do a great work in us, but what if that that great work that God wants to do in us can only happen? In the context of trials. He says, because perseverance must finish its work in us. That we may be mature and complete. I wonder how many times in your own life, I know in my life, I've wanted to have a sense of wholeness. That's, a, that's what that word is, to be complete. I wanted to find that wholeness that I, I've longed for. And, I, and wouldn't it be beautiful to come to that place and go, I'm finally mature and complete and finally mature and whole. Not perfect, but healthy. And yet what it's saying is that 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 health, that wholeness that all of us long for cannot be found without perseverance. And perseverance cannot be developed without trials. And then he goes on and says, oh, and by the way, even as perseverance must finish its work in you that you may be mature and complete, he says, oh, not lacking anything. So now somehow... You've come to this place where you're not lacking anything. Now, does, it, does that mean you have everything? No. But it means that now you're postured where you know how to access what you need in every moment in your life. It's this beautiful, beautiful promise that as you go through trials and you develop perseverance, that your soul will come to alignment with God and then something powerful begins to happen. And then he says this, But if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who, who gives generously to all without finding fault. Because he knows when you're going through trials and you're having to, to develop the muscle of perseverance. And by, by the way, I, I think of perseverance as a muscle, but the problem is that perseverance isn't one of those really exciting muscles. You, you ever gone to, like, you know, to work at the gym and here we have a place called Equinox and everybody goes and works out and there are all these mirrors and and they spend all their time looking at themselves and, and one of the things that you notice is that it's, it's always just, I don't know, more motivating to develop the muscles that everybody can see. It's not that exciting to develop the muscles you cannot see. And for a long time, my wife Kim and I, we would go to a trainer, and, and she would always make us do these exercises that were not productive, in my mind. Because they didn't build my, my, my muscles, they didn't make me look more lean, they didn't make me look more cut or more, more jacked. They just, she kept saying, we're working on your core. I just thought this is like a trainer's lie because you can't prove if you're working on your core. And she goes, don't worry, you're, you're, you're getting stronger. You just can't tell. We're working on your core. And it's always harder to work on your core. It's not any fun to work on your core. And I said, well, what's the point of working on my core if you can't see my core? Well, the reality is that perseverance is like a core muscle. She always tell me, look, every muscle you're pulling, the reason your back hurts, the reason your knees hurt, the reason you keep pulling your hamstrings, the reason that you can't stand straight is because you have a weak core. And if you could just strengthen your core, everything's attached to it. And if you strengthen your core, everything will find strength from that core. It's the same thing with the development of your character. When you develop perseverance, you're building the core. And even though everyone else can't see it, when you go through the trial, that's when you discover the strength that you've developed from the inside out. But then when you're in the middle of that, you're gonna to have to know what to do. He says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let I'm of God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to them. He's telling us in the middle of the trial, those are the moments we're gonna realize we need God, and those moments where we're so well-postured to hear from God. It's in those moments where we're gonna realize what what we need is God's wisdom, and God says, and I'm gonna give it to you freely, without condition. You don't have to be perfect, you don't have to have it all together, you don't have to qualify. The moment you ask for wisdom, God is ready and generous to give it. But says, but when you ask, you can't doubt, you have to believe. Because when you doubt, you're like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. And, and he says, well, that person is a double minded person. It means you're trying to go in two directions at the same time, and you become unstable in everything that you do. So, how in the world can we come to the place where, in the middle of the trial, we actually experience joy? Well, there's this moment where Jesus is in the middle of a trial, and we know that Jesus experienced the deepest, most profound joy it could ever be known. In Matthew chapter 4 verses 1 through 4 it tells us this. Then Jesus was led by the spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. So Jesus was actually being led by the spirit of God into an environment where he would be tested, where he would be tempted. And after 40 days and 40 nights he was hungry. That's an understatement. After 40 days and 40 nights I would be more than just hungry. I would be angry. I would be angry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, it's to me so important to realize that that the the temptation is directly connected to a genuine need. Jesus needed to eat. His body was screaming for satisfaction. Forty days and forty nights without food That was exactly where the conversation had to go. And there's so many things in life I'm not tempted by. And there's so many other things in life that are my real struggles. And you need to realize that that your battle is not the same as someone else's battle. You have a very unique battle that you will be in. But in this moment, after Jesus had not eaten for 40 days, it was as if he was pastured for the greatest challenge of his life, for the greatest trial of his life, for that moment where he had to dig deep and find who he was and what he really wanted from life. And when the evil one says, turn these stones into bread, Jesus quotes the scriptures. He says, have you not read, is it not written that man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God? Now, what's crazy to me is I would read different um, theologians and commentaries on this particular verse. And, and they would say what Jesus was saying is he didn't need to eat. He had, he had transcended to such a state of spirituality that all he needed to do is read the word of God. And boy, that is so ridiculous. That is so ridiculous. And in fact, it's one of those moments where you just go, no, this is where you're like, what in the world is God talking about? What the joy? God, how in the world am I supposed to find joy in the middle of a trial? And, and what Jesus is actually saying to him is this. You see, what you don't understand is that if I turn these stones into bread outside of the voice of my Father, that bread could not meet my needs. It would be like eating rocks. Because you see, it's not the bread that meets my, even my physical need. It's that God has spoken life into that bread. And it's his word that brings life to me. Man does not live by bread alone, but in every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You see, the ancient Greeks had a materialistic view of the universe. And so when they had pictures of torment or of eternity, of Hades, it would be a picture of someone trying to drink water, and the water would just recede as he bent down, and the water would always be at the bottom of his lip, and he, but he could never access that water, so he would die of thirst all of his life. You see, to the Greeks, it was the water that quenched their thirst. And what Jesus was actually saying is, no, it's actually the opposite, that, that the water can only quench your thirst because God has spoken life into that water, that, that water is a, is a manifestation of the goodness of God. And in the same way, if God wanted to do it a different way, he could, have, he could have just spoken and your thirst would have been quenched. And by the way, Jesus is quoting all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 8, beginning in verses 1 through 5, so I want us to look at that real quickly. The scriptures tell us, be careful to follow every command I'm giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land that the Lord promised on oath to your forefathers. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way to the desert these 40 years to humble you and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna. It's as if Jesus in 40 days is going through what Israel went through in 40 years. He says, he humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you, here it is, that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He says, your clothes did not wear out, and your feet did not swell during those 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. What it's actually telling us and what God is trying to teach his people and what, what he's trying to teach us is that God uses trials to refine us so that we can be the kind of people that can walk through any wilderness, through any trial, through any problem, through any obstacle, through any challenge, through any crisis, and be stronger than the moment we're in. But I want you to go up, back up just a little bit. He says, he humbled you, causing you to hunger. And then feeding you with manna. Now, what's interesting about manna, manna is a Hebrew word that's just transliterated. Because the word manna rhymes with the Hebrew word manhu. And manhu means, what is it? And so the Hebrews were going, what is it? What is it? Manhu? Manna. They're just naming it. We don't know what it is. It's something. It's here. Because every morning they would wake up and there there would be this wafer-like product on the ground and and they'd never seen it before. It was like the bread of, of heaven. It was like the, this angelic sort of um, wafer. And, and they would scoop it up every day. And it would have all the nutritional value that they needed to thrive. Can you imagine that? It had vitamin A and B and C and D and vitamin E. And had all, all, it had protein and carbs and everything you needed to sustain you. But it only lasted a day. So it, it was sort of flawed. Every day they would gather it, they would eat, and he said, don't save any for the next day because it would be rotten. They didn't believe him, so they saved it, and then the next day there were maggots. Except on the Sabbath. On the Sabbath, the manna, the what is it, changed its, its, its composition, and now it would thrive for two days. So on the Sabbath, they didn't have to gather manna because the bread would last two days, and then as soon as the Sabbath was over, the manna would go back and revert to its previous form and only last for one day, And what God was teaching them, listen to what he says. I did this so that you might know that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. God spoke, and the manna came into existence so that he could meet all their needs. It's exactly what Jesus taught us to pray when he said, and give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our manna. Give us our what is it. Meet our needs in unexpected ways. Meet us where we are in the middle of our trials, in the middle of our crisis, in the middle of our darkest moments, and God, surprise us with your goodness. But what we have to do is posture our hearts to trust in him. He says, I did this. I allowed you to be hungry and thirsty so that I could know your hearts or really so that you could know your own heart. And then it goes on with this very simple description and your shoes didn't wear out. Can you imagine 40 years and your shoes not wearing out? And in 40 years, your feet did not swell. And what God was saying is because I spoke it to be so. You know, for me, this became a real practical realization as a, as a follower of Jesus when I was new in my faith. I, I, I came to know Jesus and I finished college and and then I thought I was going to go to law school, but then I went to seminary, and and right before I went to seminary, the summer before, I had a relative who had some issues, some legal or illegal problems, and and I needed to take all the money I had and help them out of the situation, and I did. So the money I was going to use to go get my master's degree was now gone, and. And I went home for a few weeks and my mom was like, hey, just stay and work and earn some money and then you can go get your master's degree. But I was, I, I was concerned that if I stopped, I wouldn't ever pick up again. And so I said, no, I'm going to find some way to get there. And I went to this, um, this event at someone's house. There was a few people there and, and then people were going around sharing prayer requests. And this one guy named Frank said, hey, I, I just need prayer. I'm leaving tomorrow. I'm going across the country to Texas. I'm going to uh, get my master's degree. And just need prayer as I travel. And I said, hey, you're going to this school? And, and he said, yeah. And I said, I, I'm, I'm going to that school. And he goes, oh. And I said, hey, do you happen to have room for one person in your car? And uh, he goes, well, I, my, I have a little car. He had one of those, I think, like Toyota Corollas or something. And he goes, I don't have a lot of room. I said, I don't have a lot of stuff. He goes, well, I could take you, but but I can't take your, your luggage. Said, I said, I don't own anything except for a guitar and, and, and a paper bag full of clothes. And he said, OK, we can do that. And so the next morning, this stranger picked me up, and I shoved my guitar in the back on top of all the stuff in my one little paper bag of clothes. And I think I had $221, if I remember correctly. And we drove across the country. And, and when I got to the school, tuition was $220 because it was scholarship, And I had a buck left. I didn't have a place to live. I didn't have a car. I didn't have a job. I didn't have anything. And it was the most interesting and exciting, exhilarating time in my life. It was so much fun to be 22 years old and have no idea how I was going to make it through the day. And I remember I went over to this place called The Rack. It was a recreation center with racquetball courts. And, and I went over there just to see if they had a job, and they did not, but I met the guy who worked there. And he happened to be born on the same day I was born. He had a birthday on 8-28-58, and we just immediately, how strange, we have the same birthday. He goes, well, where are you staying? And I said, I don't have a place to stay. He goes, why don't you just come and you can sleep on our living room floor. And so I went to the stranger's house and started sleeping on their floor because we had the same birthday. What are the chances of driving across the country meeting someone who was born the same day as I was? And then each day I was waiting to get into the dorm and, and I was like three, four hundred on the list. And suddenly somehow I, I, I turned out to be number one and I, I, I got a room in there, but I had no way, uh, to, to survive. And I wanted a job board every day looking for a job. And I remember seeing all these jobs. I saw this one job that paid a lot of money per hour. And I thought, I want that job, God. And, but I didn't have a pen or pencil. So I thought, okay, I'm going to go back to my room, grab something to write information with, and I'll come back. And I went to my room. And I thought to myself, before I go back, I'm just going to just pray. And I I got on my knees, and I just started praying. I said, God, could you just give me that job? And before I finished praying, there was a knock on my door, and I opened my door, and this guy goes, are you Irwin McManus? And I said, yeah. And he goes, hey, I I just posted a job on a board, and this guy at the rack said, I should find you. You're the perfect one for that job. And so I never even had to go write down the number, didn't have to apply for the job. I got that job, but I didn't have a car. And then suddenly, about a day or two later, I got a phone call on the payphone because it was before cell phones. And somebody came and said, hey, there's a phone call for you. And I took the call, and and I I was listening to this man. He was a complete stranger. His wife was on the phone with him. He goes, are you Irwin McManus? I said, yeah. And he goes, you know, we just had a friend drive through the country. He started telling the story about how you came to know Jesus and, and the journey you were on. And my wife and I just felt overwhelmed by this sense that we're supposed to give you a car. And I said, do you need a car? And I said, yeah, I need, I need a car. And they said, okay, we're going to give you our car. And and I said, well, I really can't afford the insurance. And he goes, well, we'll cover the insurance. And so they gave me their car, and they covered the insurance. And now I had a job, and I had a car, but I didn't actually have any money yet. Which is really important for eating, and at that time I was I was literally walking down streets looking for change, trying to find change to be able to get some food, find some some cash that just made it fall on the floor to to, uh, to wash my clothes, and it was just a really fragile time for me. And then I came back to my room one day, and there was a couple of bags of groceries outside of my room, and I I I, I didn't know where they came from, but it had my name on them, and and I looked and they were all like beautiful, like sliced meats and cheeses and and, and juices, but everything was perishable. And I didn't have any way to save anything. So I just called all the guys in the dorm and I said, hey, I have all this food. You guys want to come eat? We had this huge banquet and we all ate together in the room. And I had this little thought, I wonder if I should save it for tomorrow. But I thought, it's not going to last for tomorrow. So I might as well just share it and have everyone enjoy it. And we had the best time. We had the best meal. But at the end of the day, I was a little nervous. And I wonder if that was unwise. I went to school, I came back the next day, and the next evening, bags of groceries. The next day, bags of groceries. The next day, bags of groceries. And every single day, I would have these bags of groceries outside my door, and every night, well, at first I had to invite people, but then every night people would just come to my room going, do you have the food, do you have the food? And we would just have these great meals together night after night after night, and I could never forget who's, who brought me the food. So one day, I changed my traffic patterns, and I pretended to leave. And I waited down the hall in this um, space and just waited and waited to see if someone would come. And finally this this old guy came. Well, that's the way I thought about it. Now I realize he he wasn't that old. He was like 20 years younger than I am now, but he looked so old. And, and, And this man just dropped these bags of groceries down. And I ran down the hall and I said, why are you doing this? And he told me his name was Roy. I said, Roy, I'm Irwin, but why are you doing this? We don't even know each other. We've never even met. He goes, no, no, we've met. I said, I don't remember meeting you. He goes, don't you remember? You were going to wash your clothes, and we were on the same elevator going down to the laundromat. And I vaguely had a memory of meeting him. And, and I said, but we were on the same elevator, but we never said anything. I, I think you said hi. I said hi. That was it. He goes, yeah, that's everything we said. But it wasn't everything that was said. because in that moment I heard God speak to me and God told me to bring you food every single day. To follow you, to figure out where you lived and to bring you food every single day until he told me to stop. Because God was teaching me. Give me this day my daily bread. That man does not live on bread alone but in every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I wonder how many of us have actually come to that place in our life where we realize everything we have is actually a gift from God. The air we're breathing is God saying, I love you. Every time you inhale, it is an act of receiving God's generosity. Every time you eat a meal. By the way, why do you think you're supposed to pray before you eat? See, we pray before we eat because we do not give thanks to the material but to the God who created the material. We pray because we acknowledge, God, this is going to be a great meal. Thank you for the salad. God, thank you. God, thank you for this meat. God, thank you for this. But I want to acknowledge that if you had not spoken into creation, nothing would give life. So this is my declaration that that steak tastes great because you spoke life into it that salad is amazing because you spoke life into it that water quenches my thirst because you spoke life into it because you are the God who gives life when you speak and by the way the Israelites it took them 40 years to try to understand what God was doing that man does not live in bread alone but in every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord so then how do we connect these dots to find joy in trials. Because when, what would happen if you began to see a trial as the alarm from eternity saying, God is about to do something amazing in your life. See, when you're going through a trial, it's a moment of self-awareness that this moment is bigger than you. When you're in a crisis, you realize this moment is bigger than you. See, the reason we panic, the reason we become afraid, the reason moments like this crisis created in us this incredible sense of anxiety and stress is because we become completely aware of how powerless we are over this moment. And the moment we become aware of our need, that's the moment where we can become aware of God's supply. The moment we become aware of our deficit, it is the moment we can become open to God's generosity And this is why joy is so important in trials. Because it's not just important to realize that trials can become the greatest source of of joy. Because when you're going through a trial, see if you're going through a trial and your soul knows if you, you somehow finally connected the dots, oh, God is putting me in this challenge. He's putting me in this crisis. He's putting me in this opportunity to experience the greatness of who he is. And nothing in the world is gonna give you more joy then the moment you know God is about to show up. And in Nehemiah, chapter 8, verses 9 and 10, it tells us why joy is so critical for trials. The scriptures had been lost for generations and they knew about the law of Moses and they knew about the prophets, but they had not heard their words. The scriptures were lost and now they've been found in the time of Nehemiah and Ezra. And they opened up the scriptures and the people stood had a reverence and, and one after another after another opened up the scriptures and, and taught the scriptures in a way that everyone could understand and the people began to weep and to mourn as the words began to cut deeply into their soul. In verse, verses 9 and 10 it says, Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is sacred to the Lord. Do not mourn or weep. Isn't it odd? It's a sacred day, so do not mourn or weep. Why is it that whenever we think something is sacred, it's supposed to be morose? Why when something is sacred, it's supposed to be somber? Why is it when something is sacred, there's not supposed to be celebration and laughter and joy? He said, this day is sacred to the Lord. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks. This is one of my favorite commands. Eat and drink, enjoy life, throw a party, and send some to those who have nothing prepared. Here we're in a moment of cultural crisis where people are hoarding, and he's telling them, no, this moment is sacred, so throw a party, create more, and give it to the, send it to those who have nothing prepared. Why? This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve, here it is, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. See, the reason so oftentimes we crumble under trials is not because we don't believe enough or or not because we don't have enough conviction. The reason so oftentimes we crumble under trials is because we do not understand the strength that only joy brings to us. When you are filled with joy and you realize that God is the source of that joy, He then becomes your strength. He says, consider it all joy when you face trials of many kinds. Why? Because God is the source of your joy. And when you face that trial, that joy is going to give you the strength to overcome whatever trial comes your way. And this moment, this crisis, this challenge is also your opportunity to experience the fullness of the joy that only Jesus can bring instead of lamenting this moment and complaining about it and being angry or afraid or anxious and stressed, why don't you allow this moment to take you to the deepest joy, the joy where you can say, you know, I don't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. I've learned how to pray, God, give me this day my daily bread and trust God Because every day he brings that manna, that what is it. He shows up in an unexpected way to meet us in our need, to meet us in our fear, to meet us in our anxiety, to meet us in our despair. He wants to show up in your life and fill you with joy. There's some of you right now that are listening to the sound of my voice and you have never trusted your life over to Jesus You've thought about it. Maybe you've struggled with it. But you've never crossed the line of faith and said, Jesus, I give you my life. And right now in this moment, what I want you to do, I want you to pause. I want you to just stop. And if you know that what you need is Jesus in your life, he is the source of joy you've been looking for. If you're ready to trust your life to Jesus, if you're ready to follow him, if you're ready to trust him with your dreams and your hopes and your doubts and your fears. Right now, I just want you to tell them this. Jesus, I give you my life. Right now, just make this your prayer. Jesus, I give you my life. Jesus, I give you my life. Right now, just tell them, Jesus, I give you my life. Let his joy fill you with strength to face every trial that will ever come your way. Thank you so much for joining us on the Mosaic Podcast. I wanna encourage you to take the message you've just received, allow it to go deeply to your soul, to allow Jesus to do the deep work that only he can do. And I also wanna encourage you to be a part of what we're doing here at Mosaic, to go to the Mosaic app and to become a part of the Mosaic Foundation, to become a regular giver, and investor in bringing this message across the world. I wanna thank you so much for being here with us. God bless you.